0: I invite you to turn again in your copy of God's Word, this time to the New Testament. Our uh, text this morning can be found on page uh, 834 of your pew Bible on the rack in front of you. Uh, we have lots of those pew Bibles. And so if you don't have a Bible, if you didn't bring one this morning, if you need to give a Bible to someone else, take that. Uh, it's our gift to you. Uh, take it home. Uh, make good use out of it. We have uh, plenty more where those came from. Uh, our text uh, today is... Uh, The middle part uh, of Matthew chapter 27, I say the middle part, we still got a long way to go, actually, before we get through 27. Uh, Matthew, as we've seen before, is really slowing down in these last days of the life of Jesus. He is giving us, uh, in some sense, excruciating uh, detail. We have seen Jesus on trial once already, and now we're going to see him on trial again. A different kind of trial, from a Jewish trial two weeks ago to a Roman trial this morning. Uh, No matter what kind of trial he's under, he will be shown to the reader that has eyes to see that he is innocent. Sadly, in both trials, though he is innocent, he is still treated as if he is guilty. So let's look uh, again at God's word, again at another trial, and we will see and understand a bit more about the one who suffered and died for us. Matthew chapter 27, beginning with verse 11. Now Jesus stood before the governor, and the governor asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? Jesus said, You have said so. But when he was accused by the chief priests and elders, he gave no answer. Then Pilate said to him, Do you not hear how many things they testify against you? But he gave him no answer not even a single charge, so that the governor was greatly amazed. Now at the feast, the governor was accustomed to release for the crowd any one prisoner whom they wanted. And they had then a notorious prisoner called Barabbas. So when they had gathered, Pilate said to them, whom do you want me to release for you, Barabbas or Jesus, who is called Christ? For he knew that it was out of envy that they had delivered him up. Besides, while he was sitting on the judgment seat, his wife sent word to him, have nothing to do with that righteous man, for I have suffered much because of him today in a dream. Now, the chief priest and the elders persuaded the crowd to ask for Barabbas and destroy Jesus. The governor again said to them, which of the two do you want me to release for you? And they said, Barabbas. Pilate said to them, then what shall I do with Jesus, who is called Christ? They all said, let him be crucified. And he said, why? What evil has he done? But they shouted all the more, let him be crucified. So when Pilate saw that he was gaining nothing, but rather that a riot was beginning, he took water, The word of our God will stand forever. You pray with me. Lord, but for the grace of God go we. But for your grace would we too have stood there and cried those fateful words and added that assurance of how certain we were To put our Messiah to death, we would even take responsibility for his blood. Lord, I pray by the end of our sermon today that we will be able to say those same words, but not with guilt, but with joy. We truly do, O Lord, want your blood over us and covering us, not as guilt, but as our own righteousness, Holding fast to Jesus. Lord, show us Christ, his grace, his mercy, his love, and his justice. Give us the gift of faith to lay hold of him this morning. We pray in his name. Amen. When I was a kid, growing up, we used to play a game called King of the Hill. I wonder if any of you boys, especially, still play this game. King of the hill is a simple game. One boy just gets on top of something that's a little bit higher than everything else and says, I'm the king of the hill. And all the other boys try to tackle him and take him off the king, or off the hill, right? Maybe it's an actual hill. Maybe it's a pile of rocks. Maybe it's a picnic table. Uh, and the boy shouts it and all the contenders come and they tackle him and they throw him down and they get to be king of the hill. And then what happens? Everybody comes and attacks them, right? It sounds uh, really foolish and yet sounds kind of awesome, doesn't it? <laughs> Kind of want to see you boys playing King of the Hill afterwards on our benches outside, right? Sorry, moms. Uh, The funny thing about King of the Hill is it never ends. There's always another contender to take down the next king. It never ends. It's this endless cycle of a game until it's too dark and mom calls you in. It finally is over. Reminds me of the psalm that Jim pointed us to earlier. Psalm 2 is a psalm about the king of the hill. It's a psalm of a song about a king and a bunch of people that try to tackle him off his hill. And a bunch of contenders that try to come and get God's king and throw him off the picnic table, throw him off the pile of rocks, throw him down from off high. The the description of coming to get the king of the hill in Psalm 2 is raging nations. The nations are raging against God's king. Yet if we follow the logic of the psalm, we see that King Jesus triumphs. King Jesus triumphs. He faces every contender and he casts them down. Except in the strangest of ways. Because, unlike any other story of any other king emerging victorious against any other contenders, the way that Jesus reigns and rules as king, the way Jesus triumphs over every threat, is by dying, is by suffering, is by innocently suffering and dying for his people. What I want to show you in our text today is that though the nations rage, King Jesus triumphs by his innocent suffering. You see, Peter was hoping he's going to triumph by the sword, right? No, he triumphs by his innocent suffering. Though the nations rage, King Jesus triumphs by his innocent suffering. Here's what I want to show you this morning. I want to show you King Jesus on his hill, innocent, the anointed, holy, and righteous one, And then I want to show you all the contenders that try to come get him. All the contenders that think they're going to throw Jesus off his holy hill. I want to show you that every single contender the anointed, righteous King Jesus faces is proven to be guilty. And he emerges as the innocent one who triumphs in his suffering for his people. Two points. First the king, and then the contenders. The king, verses 11 to 14 Proves to be innocent. The king proves to be innocent. Matthew takes us in verse 11 straight into uh, the trial uh, in front of Pilate. He doesn't give us uh, much context to help with. You will remember that early this morning, this Friday morning, that Matthew's recording for us, uh, Jesus has faced uh, a trial in front of the Sanhedrin. Uh, That was the Jewish authorities uh, in the house of the chief priests. And I showed you a couple weeks ago all the problems with that trial and everything that was wrong with it, and yet they still found Jesus guilty of blasphemy. But then when dawn came up, when the sun rose at dawn, they had to turn Jesus over to the Roman officials uh, to bring about the sentence. Because though the Jewish leaders could do a lot of things to people who had done wrong, they could not put them to, to death. Only the Romans could do that. So they bring him, the Jewish leaders bring Jesus to the Roman authorities under a man named Pilate, Pontius Pilate, who will sit, as we see in a minute, in the judgment seat. The literal, there's literally a thing called the judgment seat. Imagine answering to the true judge that you sat in a judgment seat. Pilate will sit in judgment uh, on Jesus. Matthew begins by telling us that the governor just asked Jesus a question. Are you king of the Jews? That question doesn't come out of, uh, just come out of thin air, Uh, We read in Luke's gospel that as the Jewish leaders have brought Jesus in front of Pilate, they have told him he makes himself king. So this is now the accusation that they bring before Pilate. And they've changed it a little bit because they found him guilty of blasphemy. They don't tell Pilate he's blasphemous because Pilate doesn't care if he's blasphemous, right? The civil authority doesn't really care if there's this little religious debate amongst the Jewish people. All he cares about is that all of his citizens are kind of peaceful and quiet and no sort of mobs and no craziness, right? So he just wants to keep everybody sort of calm and quiet. And so an accusation of blasphemy, it doesn't even come across Pilate's desk, right? His chief of staff just throws that out. And so they come up with a, a, a little bit different special accusation, he calls himself king. Now, that's setting off... An alarm bell. That's raising a red flag, right? Pilate, there's somebody else out there who calls himself king. You serve King Caesar. So this is a threat. It's now not a religious threat. This is now is framed for us as a threat to their own government. So Pilate hears their accusation. He repeats it, verse 11, to Jesus Are you the king of the Jews? Now I want you to note Jesus' defense. He did this the last time. He faced accusers. Sort of a, a two-part defense. He answers to Pilate by saying famously, you have said so. Now this is the third time Jesus has said this. Remember he said it a few weeks back when Judas asked him, am I the betrayer? And he said, you said so. Uh, it happened too when the Jewish accusers asked him if he was the son of God and he said, you have said so. And now he does that for a third time. And I've, I've tried to make this point because it's kind of an odd phrase. That what's going on is Jesus is giving an affirmation that yes, it's true, but he does it vaguely. He uses sort of a a strange collection of words that makes you and me read it and wonder, what does that mean? Does he really mean yes? Because it is an affirmation. He's not dodging this accusation. He's not pretending that he's not uh, the, the king of the Jews. He is affirming it. In fact, the Apostle Paul will write later of this very moment And he will say that Jesus made a good confession. He calls it Christ's good confession. He is encouraging a people that will probably have to stand and defend their faith before an unjust government to stand and give a good confession just like Jesus did. So there's nothing squishy about this. There's nothing Jesus trying to use a weird phrase to get out of telling the truth. No, it's the good confession. He is saying, yes, I'm king of the Jews. However, it's vague as if to say, "But not that kind of king, not the kind of king that you think I am, not the kind of king that they're accusing me of being." Yes, I am king, but not yet that kind of king." Well, that's not enough for the chief priests, and so they keep pressing him. They want to keep pressuring him, to give another answer, a better get himself in more trouble, right? We read at the end of verse 12, he gave no answer. Second time, Jesus has faced these chief priests and he's given no answer to them. It frustrates them. It amazes Pilate. Pilate's amazed by this. How in the world would you stand before your accusers and give no defense? It makes no sense. Jesus, I mean, he is done with these accusers. (laughs) These chief priests, it's all made up. This court case, this whole system is all a sham. He's not playing their game anymore. He's filling Isaiah 53. lamb for shears is silent. Pilate ends this brief exchange in his seat of judgment and he determines that Jesus is innocent. The governor is amazed and again Luke tells us, he says, I find no guilt in this man. This is the second time Jesus has been on trial and it is the second time that the evidence has not produced a verdict. The last time on the Jewish trial, it was all made up. It was all an illegal trial in the first place. Here, a a right civil trial and Pilate the judge says, I find no guilt in this man. Matthew is holding him out to us as the holy and righteous one. He doesn't want us to miss this. He's the anointed one. He is the Christ. He is the sinless one. It doesn't matter if it's a Jewish court where he is shown to be guilt, innocent and yet treated as guilty. If it's a Roman court where he is shown to be innocent and yet treated as guilty. Or ultimately, the third court he's going to face on that Friday, the heavenly court, where he will again be shown to be innocent but treated as guilty. Matthew does not want us to miss the pure and righteous innocence of Jesus. I mean, have you thought how long this is taking for me to get through these sermons? (laughs) It's because Matthew just keeps holding up this same theme to us over and over again. It's like holding the diamond up to the light and the light shines through and this brilliance of different colors, but you hold it up in just one way and you get one color coming through. That's Matthew holding up the diamond of Jesus and all that's coming through is his innocence over and over and over again. Because the innocence of Jesus is one of the most precious truths that we have as guilty people. The gospel picture in the Old Testament of the wrath of God coming upon guilty people the only way out of that wrath is the blood of the lamb. What is required of that lamb? It is without blemish. That's a physical blemish. But here, the lamb of God has not, a, probably a lot of physical blemishes, right? He's nothing impressive on the outside. But he is sinless. He is spotless. It doesn't matter who comes at him. It doesn't matter what trial sets up for him. God made Him, Paul tells us, who knew no sin. Here is the theology, the doctrine, knew no sin in a person. Here is Matthew holding that diamond up, saying see it and see it again. He knew no sin. He had no blemish. He is pure and He is spotless. And for guilty sinners like us, that is the greatest news. Because if there was just one spot, if there was just one blemish, if there was just one sin, he doesn't stand in our place. He's in the line of guilty people with us. The perfect righteousness of Christ means that when he dies a couple hours later on that cross, he dies not for his own guilt, but for ours. For guilty people like us, there's no better news. For Pilate, though, This is a big problem. You see, Pilate determines he is innocent, but now I've got an angry mob on my hands. Now I've got a dangerous group of people. They're going to upset the the Roman leadership and establishment on this feast day, right? So his problem is how to handle this. And Pilate's got a lot of answers, none of them are any good, all right? Pilate's first plan A to how to handle a a crowd that wants blood and an innocent man is to pawn him off on somebody else. He sends him away. I mean, don't we wish we could do this with our problems? I don't know, go talk to mom, right? This is what he does. He sends Jesus away, and he sends him to go to Herod. Uh, Luke tells us about it. Uh, Matthew doesn't tell us about it. Between verses 14 and 15, he goes to Herod. Herod looks at him. Herod says, I think he's innocent too. So he comes back. Now the problem, the buck, is passed back to Pilate. It's back on his desk. He is innocent, he is the king, he reigns, he rules. What about everybody else? We pick up when Pilate has to make a decision at verse 15, and I want to show you now the contenders. If Jesus proves to be innocent, let me show you the list of contenders. There's four of them. And they all prove to be guilty. Verses 15 to 24. The contenders Prove to be guilty. You may remember this account in the book of Acts uh, where God's people are under persecution. Uh, They have uh, been filled with the Spirit. Uh, The governor there doesn't want anything to do with them. Uh, They're uh, uh, about to be uh, persecuted and oppressed and soon to be killed uh, for their faith. And they gather together for a prayer meeting. Uh, They come in Acts 4. Uh, They gather together in this room to pray for boldness. And when they're facing a wicked oppression from the outside and the need for them to be bold, they pull two different passages of Scripture together. They they join Matthew 27 with Psalm 2. And this prayer pulls these two ideas together. And they pray this. Why did the Gentiles rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against His anointed. For truly in this city, Jerusalem, they were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the people of Israel. How did the early church see Psalm 2 fulfilled? Fulfilled in Pilate's judgment of Jesus. Who rages against God's king? It's the peoples, Israel and the Gentiles. It's Herod, it's Pilate. But no matter who it is, No matter who rises up to take down the king of the hill, he is always innocent and they are always guilty. Look with me at the contender's guilt. I said there are four of them. Number one, we see the prisoner, verses 15 to 17. The prisoner, Barabbas. Here he is. This clear option. Who do you want? Barabbas or Jesus? This is now Pilate's plan B. Plan A, pawn Jesus off on Herod. That didn't work, he came right back. Plan B, all right, well, you get to pick, crowd. Because it's tradition to let one go during the feast. So I'll put two before you. Of course you're not going to pick Barabbas. What are you, crazy? I'll put two before you, and you will solve my problem for me. Now, who's Barabbas? Well, he's notorious. Uh, He is a criminal. We read he is a prisoner. Different gospels tell us different things about him. He's called a robber. He's called a murderer. He's called an insurrectionist. Rises up against the government. In fact, his his thievery and his murder were both in service of him rising as an insurrection. He is the very thing that they're pretending that Jesus is. He is a Jewish earthly leader who plans to yield the sword to kill people and take over the Roman oppressors. This is sort of who they want Jesus to be. It's who the Romans are sort of afraid that Jesus is. The irony is so thick. He is the very thing they're pretending that Jesus is. And the question is, point to the crowd, do you want the murderer or do you want the guy that says he's going to lay down his life? Do you want the one who hates their enemies or do you want the one who loves his enemies? Surely, Pilate thinks, surely they will take this problem off my hand and they will release Jesus. Now, Matthew's quite a storyteller here because he doesn't tell us what they do. In fact, as we leave the scene of the prisoner versus Jesus and we see the prisoner guilty and Jesus innocent, he doesn't give us the answer from the crowd yet. He takes us to another group of people. He takes us to a second contender who had hoped to blend into the background, the priests. The second contender, verses 18 to 20, are the priests. What are they doing? They've brought the accusation. Now pilots go into the crowd. Are they just going to wait and see that justice is done? No. They are working amongst the crowd. They are whispering. They are influencing. They are maybe threatening. They are convincing the crowd to make sure the crowd is ready to pick the right guy, the wrong guy, right? Right? And they think they can get away with it. Pilate knows it. Pilate sees it. Verse 18, he knew it was out of envy they had delivered him up. Boom. I mean, Pilate's sort of blind to a lot of stuff. He, re- he nails him to the wall with this one, right? He sees they're jealous of Jesus. Now, I mean, he's the one in prison right now. What are they jealous of? I think they're jealous of his popularity. They're jealous that he gets a crowd. He's just this kind of country boy from up there in Galilee, but he comes to town with the crowd and he gets a parade and people are waving palm branches at him and he comes into the temple and he threatens us and all of this stuff and they're thinking he gets all that attention. They're jealous of him. Can you imagine that? Can you imagine they missed the Messiah of God because they're envious? They have waited their entire lives for the Messiah to come. They are the end of generations and generations of people who have awaited the Messiah, and here he is in front of their face, and they can't see him because they're jealous? I don't have time to go down this side road, but man, how dangerous is this as a warning to us? How does jealousy blind us? If jealousy blinds religious people from seeing their very Messiah, it could blind us to a lot of other stuff, couldn't it? Even Pilate's wife is through what's going on. She has a dream. What a kind of crazy line. We don't know anything about this. Matthew begins with a bunch of dreams, and now we have another dream through a woman. We don't know her name, and she just says to Pilate, have nothing to do with this righteous man. I have suffered much because of him today in a dream. Somehow she sees the truth, and the one's trained to see it miss it before their very face. The priests are shown as those who rage against the king and they come out with blood on their hands. He is innocent and they are guilty. As Matthew lets the tension build, he brings us back to the original question with our third group of contenders. Verses 21 to 23, we have the people themselves. What choice are they going to make? It's not Barabbas. The priests are a mess. What about the people? Maybe the people will finally see. They vote, verse 21, for Barabbas. Pilate, with what must have been a surprise at this point, thinks, well, 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 what what, what am I supposed to do with Jesus then? (laughs) What am I supposed to do with the guy that's called your Messiah? What am I supposed to do with the guy that's called the Christ? I think this is Pilate's plan C. He's hoping they're going to say, oh, just keep him in prison for a while and let him go. Uh, just maybe, if you have to, kind of whip him a little bit, get him in shape, and then just let him go. He'll kind of drift back off into Galilee. Pilate's putting this question back to them, hoping again to be let off the hook, hoping again to not have blood on his hands, and they cry out in the second part of verse 22, let him be crucified. Where in the world do they get this idea? I mean, Jesus has already talked about being crucified, but it's his prophecy that's going to be fulfilled when he gets to Jerusalem. The crucifixion is literally the cross, put on the cross. It's a method of killing. It's also a method of torture, both physical and emotional. Relational, as you are intended to shame the person hanging on the cross. At this point in ancient Near East history, it was the Romans who were using the crosses. And the Romans were predominantly using the crosses to torture and kill Jewish people, particularly Jewish slaves. So their great idea is to take their oppressors And the worst thing their oppressors can do and to feed Jesus right into their arms. And the Roman guy in charge wants to let him off easy. He says, affirming his innocence in verse 23, why? What evil has he done? But they shout all the more, let him be crucified. Now crucifixion, is not something that's in the Old Testament, but there are verses in the Old Testament that speak of hanging on a tree. Particularly, the Bible reads, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. And so the Jewish idea is not just that he is physically tortured and put to death, not just that he experiences human and relational shame as he hangs there naked before the judging eyes of the world, but worst of all, he experiences the curse of God. They send him to the cross that he might be cursed by God because they envy him. There's no arguing here. There's no reasoning with the angry mob Pilate Has nothing else to say. He's out of options. but he's not innocent. So I want you to see our fourth contender to the innocent king is Pilate himself. Verse 24, when Pilate saw he was gaining nothing, but rather that a riot was beginning, he took water, washed his hands before the crowd, saying, I am innocent of this man's blood. See to it yourselves. Pilate, buddy, Water does not wash this kind of guilt away. J.I. Packer says, this is one of the goofiest acts of all time. (laughs) Who does Pilate think he is? Who does he think he is to put a king to death and act like he has nothing to do with it? And even worse, who is he with a guilty conscience to think he can wash away what he has done by physically washing his hands? We have guilty consciences, don't we? We experience the shame and the guilt for our sin and our wrongdoing, and we can be like Pilate, and we can turn to the wrong things to atone for us. Maybe I'll put a little bit of extra money in the uh, the collection plate this week. That'll cover my extra bad week, right? Maybe I'll physically do something so I look nicer and, and better and clean up on the outside. Maybe I'll just do some extra good works to mount up some personal righteousness to outweigh all of my sin. But we're just as, as foolish, we're just as goofy, right, as Pilate to think there's anything that can wash away this guilt. You see, they all fail. Every single one of them up against Jesus They are shown to be guilty, and he is held as Matthew, like a rock, holds up the innocence of Jesus before our eyes. So we get to the end, and Jesus is set free, right? God's going to vindicate him, right? You you think you're going to get to the end, and verse 26 is going to say, and everybody finally saw the truth, and he went free. Verse 26, they released, not him, but Barabbas. I mean, this that verse right there is a picture of the exchange of the gospel, isn't it? The the innocent one is condemned. And the guilty one, who's actually guilty, who is notorious for his sin, is set free. Barabbas Bar Abba means son of the Father. I don't know. Nobody knows quite where that name came from. What a picture here. Now he is treated. The Son of God is treated with guilt and shame and then the notorious criminal with the name Son of the Father is set free. This is the great exchange of the Gospel. This is you and me now with the name Sons and Daughters of the King set free in the exchange accomplished by the innocent suffering of our Savior. You see, it looks like the bad guys win, doesn't it? But unlike anywhere else in the world, in the gospel, defeat is victory. In Christ, loss is gain. With our God, death is life. How does Psalm 2 continue? We got nations raging. We got a king on his hill. What is God doing the whole time? One of the best lines in scripture, right? He's laughing. God is in heaven laughing at these petty pathetic nations raging against his holy king. He laughs because this is all part of his plan. He laughs because their rebellion is part of his sovereign control. He laughs because he told us all the way back in Matthew chapter one, if you can remember that far back, that God said through the angel to to Joseph, she will bear a son. He will call his name Jesus. And he will save his people from their sins. Jesus says later, he has come to give his life as a ransom for many. See, death is victory. Loss is gain. They think they're winning. They're only accomplishing the plans of God who sits in the heaven and laughs at them. Pilate, he laughs at you. Herod, he laughs at you. The Gentiles that rage against him and as sobering of all, even his own people who have rejected The Savior, He laughs. Because God sets His King on the hill. God sets King Jesus on the holy hill. In the resurrection triumph, two days later, when He will be raised from the dead, He will prove victorious and He will be planted feet firmly on that holy hill, never to be dislodged again. And in resurrection triumph, God vindicates Jesus and He vindicates you and me as we are in Christ by faith. You see, this passage ends with a choice for us. Psalm 2 ends with a choice for us. Psalm 2 gives us the option in sort of strange language. It says, kiss the Son lest He be angry. Bow before the Son. Repent before the Son. Love the Son. Trust the Son. Kiss the Son, lest He be angry. And our Bibles say, blessed are all who take refuge in Him. Or as we just sung in the psalm, all who trust Him, blessed are they. So we take refuge in the Son. And what does that look like? It looks like those infamous words. His blood be on us and on our children. Let me tell you this. His blood is on you no matter what. His blood is either on you condemning you, or it is on you covering you. There's no other place. There's no other choice. We either stand with the guilty and we cry out our own condemnation. We are guilty of His blood, or we stand with the repentant and we cry out His blood like the blood of the lamb without blemish spread on the doorpost, that that blood covers us and it's on us and by God's grace, it's on our children and it's on our children's children. What will it be for you? How is his blood on you today? The nations rage, the king rules and blessed are you who take refuge in him. Let's pray. our Lord and our God, but by the grace of Christ go we. We were once one of those contenders. We were once one of those who raged against You. We were once one of those who plotted in vain. And maybe some of us are still there. Lord, I pray, show us our sin today. Show us our guilt, whether it's like the priests or the people, whether it's like Pilate or the prisoner. Show us our guilt. That we would come and, like Barabbas, be set free. We would come and rest under your blood. We would see your righteousness and your innocence, and it wouldn't be a problem for us. It would be the greatest news for us. Lord, I pray. I pray indeed that your blood would be on us, that your blood would be over us, And there is freedom. And there is life. And there is no condemnation now for those who are in Christ Jesus. For You made Him who knew no sin to be sin, that in Him we might become the righteousness of God. You are our righteousness. And You we rejoice this day and always. Amen.